Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Mark Royer. It's July 13th, 2021. We're at Royer Vineyard in Salem. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate this. Oh, fantastic. Thanks for coming out. Uh, first question, biggest one to get us started, as you know, is why wine? That is the question. You know, I remember last year seeing this t-shirt that said, you know, wine is the glue that holds this 2020 shit show together. And that kind of resonated, not just at the level of 2020, which, which had its issues, but in general, wine is kind of a glue, it binds. It binds friendships, it binds memories, binds occasions, families. And so when I think back, you know, to some of my highlights in life, you know, my greatest memories, and, and what was the glue that brought those together, it's, it's always wine. Whether you're uh, in Europe in a cellar, walking through, smelling the dirt and the mold, and, and looking at these bottles that are older than I am, um, or, or sitting in an Italian winemaker's living room while the parents are cooking food for you um, and you're trying to understand what they're saying. Um, riding bikes through vineyards, you know, whether it's in Oregon or, or in Burgundy, um, and just walking the rows, you know, and just seeing um, what's going on. Um, dinners, obviously meals around friends and family. Um, you know, those are the things that when I reflect, um, those are what come into my head. Mm-hmm. You know, I could be sitting here with my wife on the porch uh, watching the sunset, and that's a beautiful memory. Um, so when you ask why wine, you know, I, I honestly can't imagine life without it. So take us through uh, kind of your early life uh, upbringing. Where were you born? Where, did you, where were you raised? And uh, what did you do sure, after sure. high school? <laughs> well, thank God, not before high school. <laughs> um, yeah, raised in Cleveland, Ohio. So, you know, Midwestern boy, you know, there's this Alex Bevin song, Skinny Little Boy from Cleveland, Ohio. And that was one of the songs we played here at the wedding um, as I came out in outfit number two, which was a full on Cleveland Browns suit, um, highly combustible suit. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) melts down every January. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, I didn't grow up with a family that drank wine. Um, You know, it it was a a non-drinking or a beer drinking family. Um, never had a glass of wine in my life until college and at that point you know it was this beautiful wine and food pairings called Mad Dog and Velveeta uh, and that was my entree into wine it uh, it did not get much better for the next couple years um, I remember my my girlfriend at the time her parents giving me this beautiful bottle for my birthday it was a Napa Valley uh, Cloudeval and luckily I was not in front of them when I opened it because after one sip I, I poured it down the drain <laughs> and went back to drinking a PBR. So it got better, it got better. Because my first job, um, I, 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 I took a job on, on Wall Street and, and the department took me out for a dinner. And they said, Mark, um, you know, you're the new guy, you can uh, pick any bottle on the wine list you want. And at this time, you were talking late 80s, right? So money was flowing left and right. And, there was not an issue. And I looked at the wine list and I said, all right, I'm not gonna do the most expensive, which was a, a burgundy wine with three initials. Although in retrospect, I should have. It might have taken me on a different course. So I picked the second most expensive wine, which is a 1970 Chateau Palmer. And 
that was probably my aha bottle. It's like, wow, I do like wine, and this is quite amazing. So it was that week that I went out to the bookstore in the World Trade Center, and I bought Kevin's Raleigh's book, you know, Windows of the World. And I took that book to my local uh, wine shop with $20. And I met the owner, and I said, listen, here's what we're going to do. Every week, we're going to do a chapter. I'm going to give you 20 or $30. You're going to bring wines that fit the chapter. I'm going to drink them during that week. I'm going to come back, and we're going to talk about it. And we're going to do a new chapter. And so we progressed through that book. And that was a fantastic learning opportunity for me about wine in general, about grapes, about regions, um, about styles. And it, it progressed from there. You know, it, it, picking up, you know, my 20 or $30 became $50. Um, and I, I, I bought more than I could consume in a week. So you start building up bottles. And hence the collection started. Uh, and I guess that kind of takes me to you know, a little bit post-college mm -hmm. um, at mm -hmm. that point. So what was, you mentioned kind of an early job on Wall Street. What was, what, what did you go to college for and, and what were you sort of anticipating as your career path? So college, I went to Lafayette College and initially I was enrolled as an EE and uh, before I started they had a new major, computer science. You know, this is 1983. So computer science was a new thing. And they were going to select six people to participate in this new program. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And so I was one of the six. And it was a tremendous failure. They did not have the resources, the faculty, anything. So um, partway through the year, the whole thing was abolished. And I was like, wow, what do I do? <laughs> and so at an event um, in the fall, I met, uh, I met this guy, Bill Simon, who was a, uh, an alumni and was donated a lot of money to start a new economics center. And so he's like, Mark, what do you think about economics? I said, well, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> By the end of that evening, and a few classes of, uh, of imbibement, he convinced me to become an economics major, which is what I did. And uh, economics and finance became you know, what I was into. Mm -hmm. And I went on to doing uh, an MBA um, down in Richmond, Virginia. And then on to jobs, you know, Wall Street and, and investment banking, and then ultimately, uh, that was both New York and then to Virginia, and then out to uh, Sand Hill Road in, in California to do the venture capital gig for a while. Um, at which point I had had enough finance. <laughs> I'm curious about that. What was the after the initial kind of I'm going to be an econ major, what was the draw for you beyond that to, into the career and what did you enjoy about it and then what did you eventually, why did you eventually leave it? Uh, the draw in I think was friends. You know, a year ahead of me, graduated college, you know, they had gone um, onto Wall Street mm -hmm. and I saw, what, I saw their path, I saw their life. Um, it was something that I wanted um, as well mm -hmm. and so following kind of in their footsteps was what brought me to Wall Street. And leaving uh, Wall Street was a decision of, of lifestyle. Um, you know, the, the idea of, um, back then this is, you know, getting married to my first wife. Um, New York just wasn't a place we wanted to, to raise a family. Mm -hmm. And so we thought about where we would go. You know, where's another financial hub? Um, but allows you to kind of live in the country a little bit. And Richmond, Virginia was uh, where she got a job 
and so, so perhaps that was the driver mm -hmm. to take us down south a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and she being from, you know, down south, it, it kind of brought her closer to family as well. Um, so that was the move there, and, and ultimately, you know, the, the south is the south, and after a decade, it was like, great, that's fantastic, and, but I was yearning to travel west. Mm -hmm. and, and the yearn actually came, if I could backtrack a mm -hmm. minute, from a, uh, another one of those kind of moments in life that move you along the wine course. And, and as I was learning about wine with this wine shop, I met this gentleman, John, and he, um, I don't know, kind of took me under his wing a little bit and educated me on, on finer wines, you know, ones I could not afford. <laughs> First growth and, and such. And he's like, Mark, he goes, I'm gonna take a few guys to California. We have these great visits. Um, you're gonna see what they do out there. And I've never been to California. I've never been to the West Coast. So I was like, sign me up, I'll go. So we had a fantastic four or five days, you know, ate great food, um, met, you know, famous winemakers, saw the, the big Napa wine factories as they, as they seem to be. But for me, it was like walking the vineyards. I was like, wow, this is really special, right? Um, just endless streams of, of, of grapes and leaves and dirt. And so that was kind of a spark um, for me that, that really wanted, to, um, I wanted to pursue that further. And, and I kind of forget where this thread was going as I backtracked. <laughs> Perhaps you could pull me back to what I was saying. Um, heading back west for the second time. So heading back to, um, yeah, so, so I, I kind of had that still in my head. I wanted to get back west. And when this opportunity came up um, to, to, to do it, I took it. And so uh, we packed up and moved. And this, this was at 9-11. Um, th this was right then. So we had just sold the house. We had the airplane tickets booked. You know, we had all these animals, five animals coming on the airplane with us. Um, everything, you know, was being shipped. And then the airlines say, no, there's no animals coming on board this airplane. We're like, gosh, what do we do? So cruise America, right? <laughs> Here we come. So we packed all the animals and packed food and did a road trip, which um, was not my favorite road trip. <laughs> as you can imagine, <laughs> um, and we did 16-hour days, and we got here coast to coast in less than three days, uh, <laughs> and voila, right? I mean, welcome to California, and uh, it was within a week. One of the cats just took off. It's just like, I've had enough of this. You know, it's the only male cat, you know, with four females, and uh, you would think he was having a good time, but apparently not. <laughs> Tell me about California then. You, you'd, you'd visited it, you kind of had this notion in your head, you'd seen wine, you'd seen vines. Tell me about coming back as a, as a resident and, and what, what, what were your first impressions when you got back? Sure, yeah. Um, living you know, down um, in the Bay Area, you're, you're close to vines, but they're not in your backyard. So it, it does take some effort to make a road trip out of it. Um, but the effort's worth it. And quite often we would make those road trips Initially, joined wine clubs. You know, at one point I was in 20-something wine clubs, right? Um, and you just, you can't go to every party. Um, so like wine clubs become less important mm -hmm. because you can buy the wine at your local wine shop for the same price, give or take. So, so going through iterations of meeting winemakers and asking questions and participating, that's the thing, you gotta participate. And if you don't, you won't learn. So we participated and participated for years and the collection grew. We built a wine cellar in the house and the collection grew. Um, but it was kind of, that's where it was, right? It, 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 there was no desire to be in wine. Mm -hmm. There was a desire to make wine a part of life. Mm -hmm. But you know, your vocation and your avocation are two different things. Mm -hmm. 
Then it was, um, you know, I had done the VC thing for a while, and it was with dinner one night. A good friend of mine and his wife came over, and, and he brought these beautiful wines. I remember 89 and 90 Margot and La Missy Aubryon, plus some beautifully come. And he told me about his day. And he said, I did this thing called the French Wine Society. I did this Masters of Burgundy course, and I just graduated today. And of course, we're drinking Bordeaux. <laughs> so <laughs> I think he had enough Burgundy at that point. So, <laughs> so I was fascinated by getting educated all of a sudden. And so the next day, I uh, signed up with French Wine Society and went through the Master of Burgundy, you know, the next time they had that course, and learned a lot about Burgundy and became fascinated with it because at that point I had not really, and this probably goes back, I don't know, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I had not really had a lot of Burgundy. You know, a lot of California Pinot and Chardonnay, a lot of Cabernet, mm. Bordeaux. Um, so now learning about Burgundy was, was fun and different and cool. And then it was like, all right, what do I do next? Like, 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 like this monster came alive and I was like, I need more, I need more. So it was like, a friend of mine was doing the, the Psalm series, and that sounded, you know, fun. But I really didn't want to learn everything that they were teaching. I don't, I don't want to carry a plate of wine glasses and serve wine. I want to learn business of wine. Mm -hmm. And so I was turned on to something called the WSETs. And that had a similar bent, um, but it was more business. Mm -hmm. And it's like, fantastic, I'm going to do this. And so I embarked upon that and did went through the levels, including diploma. Mm -hmm. and. And it was as I was graduating through diploma, I had the spark to bring the avocation and the vocation together. And like, you know, I know finance. I now sort of know parts of wine through books. You know, can I pull these two together somehow? Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was banking um, with, with, with one of the um, banks down in the Bay Area that does a lot of wine banking and had a talk with them. and. And although I didn't ultimately go to work for them, I went to work with another bank that was starting up kind of a similar thing in Sonoma. And so, although they were established in Napa already, um, they didn't really have a Sonoma component. And uh, so we worked out a job. And I was going to be uh, a wine banker. And it's like, great, I'm bringing together all the things that I want to do in a job. Mm -hmm. And that was fantastic for a couple years. And ultimately, I decided, you know, it's still banking, <laughs> and it's not enough wine, and and, and I need to I need to get rid of this banking part. So, it was about that time again that I was approached by a friend who had gone through the WSETs as well, and he's like, Mark, what do you think about starting a wine merchant business? And we talked about it and went over what that would mean and how it would look, and and spent months doing this. And that was the kind of genesis of. Uh, uh, Cortier Wines, which is a company I, I still am a part owner in, down, and it's located in the Bay Area, and, and we import um, French and Italian uh, wines, mostly Burgundy, Champagne, Barolo, etc. Um, and that was all right. Then I'm full-time wine now. Mm -hmm. All right, this, this is it. This is a real McCoy, and we're you know three guys plus a couple employees, you know, making no money um, <laughs> because we have to pay investors back, and and but can we make this thing work? Mm -hmm. And that was uh, 2015, and it's still going. Six years, you know, later, um, yeah, we're still not getting paid much, and <laughs> so. But uh, yeah, so, so that's what took me to full-time wine, mm -hmm. uh, 
and then this vineyard is a, uh, a whole separate animal. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of thought of retirement project, if you will, which it uh, has not become. It's become get back to work project. Uh, <laughs> but that's, you know, we could save that for another question. Sure. Well, I want to, before we get to that, then let's back up for a second. You, you mentioned the WSET. Um, Tell me about the, the biggest takeaways for you from, from that and, and as you were learning wine, all the different ways you were learning wine, you were, you were educating your palate, then you were sort of edu taking the formal education. What were the things about wine education that appealed to you? What did you enjoy learning the most when it came to wine? Sure, sure. Um, I mean, I've always loved education. I've, I've, I've been kind of that geek, you know, if you will. Um, and especially when it comes to numbers. Um, that's, you know, in addition to have an economics major, I had a physics minor, and it's all about numbers, everything's about numbers for me. And, which is, you know, has its pros and its cons, obviously. Um, but to get more into wine education, it's just like, I needed to learn more, right? I was, I was hanging around people that knew more. And you can drink all day long and build your kind of muscle memory um, on the palate. But I still needed to know, you know, why things were, you know, why, how, you know, what makes it tick. Mm -hmm you know, like a clock builder, right? Like, like get into the, to the gears. And so education was, was the only way I was gonna make that happen. And it was quite easy to get educated. You do it in your spare time, um, you can do it from home, or back then, you know, you go out to um, the, the local hotel, the Marriott or whatever, with a group of people, and you, you taste the wine that the teacher presents, and you form a palate, you understand things. Like, I had a hard time initially telling the difference between a raspberry and a strawberry, mm -hmm. even though I eat them every day. Mm -hmm. um, when I drink a glass of wine, I can't tell you, you know, um, is that raspberry or strawberry? I don't know, it, it's a red berry. You know, do I care? Not really. And, and still to this day, I kind of don't care that much. Um, what I want to know is structure and balance mm -hmm. and, because the, the, the flavor components to me are gonna change from minute to minute and from whatever I'm eating at the time. But the structure was kind of the structure. And so it was important to learn structure because that then became something I could discuss with people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can discuss flavor characteristics and, and, you know, as it were, but when you really got into acid and tannin and, 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 and body uh, viscosity, things like that, that's when the conversation for me got interesting because then that relayed back to terroir and the land and what's creating the, the structure. And so the take back then um, went from just having these conversations at events and dinners mm -hmm. to wanting to learn about land. Mm -hmm. And so, so the WSET uh, helped me learn land um, from, from why European land, you know, why Burgundy and its limestone is different from volcanic soils here. Mm -hmm. You know, what is it? You know, what's, what's, what's creating the grape? So education had to happen at that level, and, and it did. And that's kind of what took me through the WSETs. And I had thought about pursuing further education, you know, the Master of Wine. Honestly, at that point, I had started Cordier, and, and for me, it was like, great, get the Master of Wine. Um, what's that gonna really do for me at this point? Is it gonna help me start another company? No, I just started one, and I'm fine. Um, I'd rather not spend any more money on education at that point uh, and, and get a business going that, that has good genesis. So that uh, was the end of education, you know, formally, <laughs> and, and still is to the most part. Um, odds and ends here and there, but. Mm -hmm. So when it came to, when it came to w wines themselves and what you found yourself drawn to drinking and drawn to coming back to, 
Describe for me the wines that appealed to you. What, what did you find that was sort of the, the kind of the through line for wines that you that you sure. wanted to drink, uh, and that and was there something about the way they were grown that you found that was something that was similar? Um, you know, going back, I was drawn to California. That's where I was. That's where I lived. Um, you know, I recall a trip to Paso Robles, and and you know they have these big Zinfandel events where where dozens and dozens of winemakers and hundreds of bottles of 16% Zinfandel flying around in a hot summer day and you know by noon you don't even know where you are um, and, I, and I left that weekend with um, the SUV filled to the brim with cases of wine and one really big outdoor chair which which I, I still don't know why I bought that thing I still have it by the way you know it's one of those things that you don't know why you bought it but it's fantastic and you keep it the rest of your life uh, <laughs> which is what's happened. Uh, and, you know, since then I was like, wow, um, I really bought a lot of interesting wine that I'm not gonna drink that much. Um, so ultimately that wine um, sat around for a long time and, and ended up in various venues that uh, didn't matter so much. Mm -hmm. but, um, mm -hmm. but I think I started off big and bold and in red, not white, uh, still not sparkling. And then it, 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 through the process, I think, of education and meeting people that drank other wines, that's how the palate changed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even though, as I said earlier, I'd, I'd gone through the Kevin book and tried all the wines, you know, at a base level mm -hmm. and formulated opinions, um, it, it, you know, it's proximity is what drove my drinking, mm -hmm. and I was close to Cabernet. Um, so I guess from there, you know, just like I said, meeting people and, and going to different dinners, and then obviously starting um, Cordier, our business was not really Napa Cabernet, even though we acquired collections that had vast, um, you know, vast sellers of old Napa Cab, which is a phenomenal product. Mm -hmm. um, some of those, you know, back from the 60s and 70s to this day are quite amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, and every now and again, you get a beautiful shard from back then that still is, is hanging in there, right? It's like, they can do it. They did it, you know? Back in the day, they did it. Um, but so it was time to evolve, I guess. And my, my palate changed. My food changed. Um, I, I, I ate le less red meat, um, more fish, more mm -hmm. salads. Mm -hmm. So, wow, okay, um, this cab tastes really terrible <laughs> with this, right? <laughs> so what do we drink? Mm -hmm. uh, wow, white wine. All right, so let's try Chardonnay. And so off to Chardonnay I went. And, mm -hmm. And, and, and that had its roller coaster um, ride, you know, as Chardonnay went from something enjoyable to something buttery and oaky. Uh, and I had not really experienced Burgundy at that point. I'm, I'm stuck on California still at this stage of my life. Um, but Burgundy did come. Mm -hmm. And, and it's just, there's a saying that my friend told me, all roads lead to Burgundy, right? And I'm sure you've heard this, and, and they do. Um, and I've seen it with many, many of my clients. and. Um, <laughs> And it's true, your, your, your palate changes. You, you don't have that desire to drink big and bold. Mm -hmm. um, you, you want a little more refinement and elegance. And you really need to branch out. Like at this point, I drink much more white wine than red wine. Um, in the winter, maybe some red, but in the summer, it's pretty much exclusively white mm -hmm. and champagne, you know, bubbles. And that's fantastic, you know, the diverge a little bit here that Oregon is getting big into bubbles. So for me, this is a, you know, this is something we could talk about about the future of Oregon, but I'll slip it in now that I love the fact that Oregon's making a push, you know, uh, in, into bubbles because I think we have the ability to do it on, on, a, on a fantastic scale with high quality. So I'll leave it there for now. We'll definitely come back to it.
So now you're you're in California. You're you're full time wine. You're you're out of banking. You've got your you've got your company. So how do we get from there to sitting here in in, in, sure, in yeah. West Salem, Oregon? <laughs> so as I said, it was a uh, kind of a retirement idea. I mean, initially we had looked for land in Italy, and we some friends of ours in in, in California uh, had this. He, he's an architect, a pretty famous architect in San Francisco, and, and she's a restaurant owner from Luca. Um, they had a they had a, a, a property in Umbria, you know, with with the old the old buildings kind of there. And being an architect, he was able to design um, into a modern, but keeping the old bricks and stones and things. And the idea was, you know, you're going to create these two buildings. It's got vineyards, it's olive trees, vegetable gardens. You're in Umbria, beautifully. We could do farm to table. We can bring bicycling companies through here. Um, on and on the story goes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it was like, yes, I'm all in. So, you know, we flew over. They had been there six months prior, and they had caretakers and this and that. So I'm expecting something phenomenal, right? And I'm all ready to either buy or partner or something like that. So we get there, and the building, so he had built, the one, the guest house was built already. It was completely overgrown with the Italian equivalent of kudzu. Um, and this is in six months. And the vineyard's gone. Chingali have ravished it. Mm. The olive trees are not looking good. And, and I look over, and I was like, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> because at this point, I'm not going to enjoy Italy anymore. It's going to become a, a, a never-ending project. And I really want to enjoy Italy. So at that, the next day, we took off to Luca and enjoyed the rest of our trip. Um, and that was the end of my, my foray into wanting to buy something abroad. <laughs> So I, I came back and I was like, all right, where, where do I want a piece of land? California was out of the question. I couldn't afford it. Um, and then it was kind of an inspiration from friends um, in California who, who moved up here um, a, a year or two prior, bought a piece of land, you know, started to develop a vineyard, refurbished the old house on it, and made it work. They did it. Mm -hmm. right? They made the move. And they have, they have, and it's in Oregon. It's like, wow, that's pretty close. <laughs> and it's Pinot and Chardonnay. You know, at that point, two of my favorite grapes. So, you know, a little due diligence and, and one vacation, you know, brought me here to look at uh, various vineyard pieces, really. Mm -hmm. And this was one of them. Um, I had all intent to spend a year, because I'm a bit analytical. I wanted to understand AVAs up here. I did not know them. I wanted to understand soils. I wanted to understand the people, the players, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so I was like, all right, this is gonna take a year. But I, I do like this piece of property. It's pretty nice. And at the time, it was like a forest, and pigs were living here, and uh, there was this there was this single wide that the neighbors had many interesting nicknames for. <laughs> and so it was, you know, an interesting piece of land, right? Uh, but I expressed an interest to the realtor. And the property had been on and off the market for four years, no, no bites at all. So lo and behold, a week later, the realtor calls me and says, Mark, um, there's somebody interested in a property, so if you want it, you might want to put an offer in. And, and, and I'd played in real estate here and there you know, for, for a number of years. And it's like, OK, yeah, I, I'm sure there's another buyer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought, I said, you know what? I said, but in case there is, I don't want to lose this property. And, and so what is the price I would offer today that I would have zero regret if they took it? Like, you know, I could still spend another year analyzing and, and sell this if it's not the one. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with that number and I gave it to the realtor. I said, here's my number. And lo and behold, they took it. I was like, where's your other buyer? <laughs> <laughs> so this is how I ended up with this piece, right? Um, and 
you know, I have no regrets. Mm -hmm. It's the perfect piece of land. Um, you know, we, we, we brought uh, you know, Andy Gallagher up here from Red Hills and, and did the, the, the soil pits and um, the, whole, the whole report and it was exactly, you know, what I wanted. And I think during this process too, I learned that, you know, if your focus is Chardonnay, which from the get-go mine was going to be Chardonnay, um, this EOL Amity is where you want to be. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, and, but I did not know that at the time. So it all worked out. Um, you know, so, so you know, everyone says luck, it's, you know, preparation and timing. I think for me it was just timing. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of preparation. <laughs> kind of post-preparation. Yeah, post-preparation, yeah. Exactly. yeah. So I'm curious, before we get to, the, to that part of it, I'm curious about when you did do kind of your due diligence on, on Oregon, what, what was your impression of the Oregon wine industry? Had, had you had a lot of Oregon wines previously, and, and what, what were your impression of those as well? Um, the answer is no, I've not had a lot of Oregon wines. Um, in, my, in my brief foray into banking, we had a few clients up here, um, so I was able to learn a little bit and try a few wines, but no, Oregon was not really on my radar for consumption. It was on my radar um, as America's kind of premier Pinot producer. Mm -hmm. Not Chardonnay yet at that point. Mm -hmm. And this, again, you know, put yourself back um, six years. Mm -hmm. um, Chardonnay was out there, but it wasn't known um, as, as being great. Um, but Pinot was, right? So, so I guess my impression was this is a great place for Pinot. I love Pinot, but I want to grow Chardonnay. And, and, and why Chardonnay, I guess, is, is the question. And first off, I love it. You know, it's, it's what I like to drink. Um, that and Riesling, which is why we have a little bit of Riesling planted here as well. Um, but I thought Chardonnay was still developing. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be part, first off, I, I, you know, if I planted Pinot, I'd be a small fish in a big sea. And, and that didn't really appeal to me. Um, but, but to be part of something that, in my opinion, was getting underway and had a lot of development potential was what excited me. Mm -hmm. So the two things, kind of, I like drinking it, um, and if I can't sell any, I could at least drink it all. <laughs> you know? and, and I saw this, you know, but the finance side came out, right? Supply and demand. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of demand happening for Chardonnay. There's not a lot of vineyards planted right now. Mm -hmm. um, of course, today there, there are. Um, it's, it's a whole different game. So I, I feel like, you know, I was kind of, in a little bit early on mm -hmm. uh, planting Chardonnay, and, and today I don't know. I think there might be one other vineyard around that's 100% Chardonnay, um, or, or you know, like no Pinot, mm -hmm. um, but certainly not too many. Mm -hmm. uh, so I kind of put all my eggs in one basket, mm -hmm. <laughs> rolled the dice, <laughs> yo 11. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm happy. It worked out. Um, I feel it's worked out. You know, so far. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, yeah, I, you know, again, no regrets, right? It, it's the pieces all fell into place. But I think it's a matter of sometimes you 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 shoot first and aim second, and it's not always the best approach. But as long as after you shoot and you look back at your aim and you learn from that aim, did I did I have the right instinct? Mm -hmm. you, you can carry that forward, um, which is kind of how this is this is gone. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, now we've got you know, a house here, and this is full-time living. Um, I, I recall when I was developing this, um, you know, so we, we, it was purchased 2016, and development, land development, clearing, all happened you know, 2016, 2017. And, and, then, and then the house, the structure started being built in 2018. But I had nowhere to live. And you know, we're, 
an hour plus south of Portland. Um, it's kind of hard to drive there at nighttime. I mean, what I did from California was, was day trips. Honestly, I'd, I'd take the six o'clock flight up, I'd come down here, take care of stuff, get on a nine o'clock flight back home. And it was just like a day commuting, all right? Ultimately, that got tiring. So, so I set up a little campsite you know, down over here and started tent camping. Mm -hmm. And I did that, you know, summer of 16, no winters now, mind you, just summers. <laughs> summer of 16, summer of 17, and, and, and part of 18. Um, in 18, I actually ended up getting an apartment in Portland um, just to make life a little bit simpler. You know, <laughs> I'm getting old, I can't camp forever. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it was, it was fantastic to live on the land mm -hmm. and to hear, you know, what's walking around at night and to understand the, 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 the vibe, right? To mm -hmm. become one with the land, as it were. And, and that's what did it for me. And, and that, you know, guided many decisions. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I recall the night before we planted th th these first uh, 10 acres, you know, we had everything scheduled, certain rural orientations and, and this and that. And, and I had dinner in McMinnville with uh, someone you've interviewed, you know, Tamar over at Lingua Franca and, uh, and David Honig. And, and a few other people, and we were discussing, you know, row orientation. And by the end of the dinner, uh, decided to change the orientation, you know, from one way to another way. And of course, meeting the vineyard manager the next morning, he's ready with his crew with the with the pencil rods. No, no, you know, pull out the blueprint. And so on the on the hood of the car, we redid the whole thing, while all the workers are are waiting, you know, somewhat patiently or impatiently, um, to get working. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it's one of those things, you know, we, we sort of shot first, as it were. But that decision and that slight delay of, of a half a day, um, again, no regrets. It was the right decision because now my orientation is exactly the way I would want it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned, you described a little bit what the land looked like when you purchased it. Tell me about the what you learned from it before you planted what 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 do you have what did you have here what were the sort of the raw components you had here and how did that sort of guide what you wanted to do and where you wanted to do it sure yeah so this is um this is a volcanic site you know first off and it's um typically shallow soils with sort of one pocket exception of jory um, but mostly it's rittner some nakaya a lot of witzel uh, so very shallow, low water holding um, capacity. And we're at between six and 700 feet. So that was one thing I guess I was looking for in a vineyard is I wanted elevation. You know, I think one thing we're facing is climate change. Um, it's very apparent uh, out here. It's very apparent as you grow crops, right? You see the impact immediately. Um, so elevation was important to me. You know, I looked at a site or two that was a thousand, um, six years ago, a thousand didn't make sense today, it's perfect sense, um, you know. Um, and, and, and it was also like, I knew I was gonna live on the vineyard. Mm -hmm. So it has to have some sort of potential for aesthetic beauty, mm -hmm. right? Something I'm gonna look at every day. And, and you know, the east side, I guess, is traditional in grape growing because the sun comes up, it warms the dew off the grapes, they dry, it inhibits, you know, mildews mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But I ended up on the west side. Again, one of those things, you know, <laughs> shot first. But um, no regrets again because I love the sunsets. 
and every day pretty much we get the most amazing sunset and you, you watch out and, and um, you see the hawks uh, flying around and, and the sun setting and mm -hmm. that glass of champagne with your wife is a, is a perfect way to end a day. Mm -hmm. it's, it's quite meditative. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think you know, your mindset is important to managing a vineyard as well and if you're really not into what you're doing um, and it's not a love, you know, you, you, I don't know if you're necessarily going to fail but I don't think you're going to have your best foot forward. Mm -hmm. So for me I needed a place I was really going to fall in love with mm -hmm. um, as well as have all the components. So the components, you know, elevation, um, the soil types, you know, I love the shallow soils, you know, from the wines I had tried, uh, wines off Witzel were very compelling to me, you know, whether it's Pinot or Chardonnay, they just had something about them. I wanted the Van Duzer, you know, this, this was Chardonnay, the Van Duzer was key for me. Um, the wind, and you can feel a little bit now, um, but as soon as that sun sets, that wind just sucks in here, and it's drying everything off, mm -hmm. it's, you know, toughening up the skins a bit, which helps them to resist, you know, whatever wants to come in and, and take them out. Um, and, and then it was just like, I also just didn't want miles and miles of vineyard around me. I wanted trees. I wanted habitat, right? And this had great oak trees on it. And it was like, oaks were important to me. Um, not just, be, they, they provide so much. They provide, you know, a resting point for hawks, mm -hmm. which we need hawks around here to take care of rodents. They, they provide, um, you know, the blackberries, lots of blackberries here, and they are habitat for all sorts of creatures and birds. And it was all about just creating this, this, this habitat that was inclusive um, and not just a vineyard, which is why, you know, with this rest of the planting that we can consider, this other six acres, is it going to be more grapes? I don't know. You know, it, it may not be. It may be uh, apples, maybe more um, hazelnut trees inoculated with truffles like we started an acre of um, a few years ago. It, who knows what it's going to be, but it's, it's somehow it's going, to, it's going to add diversity in whatever it is. Um, but I think those were the key points here, you know. Um, and, and after reading the soil reports, I was very convinced that this was a great place to grow Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. now, it would grow great Pinot, and most people probably would have planted Pinot here. Um, and as I, you know, I gave you the reasons why I did not plant Pinot, but also thinking, you know, about climate change. Pinot Noir has a, a small tolerance for change in temperature. Um, it's like four, you know, degrees on average growing. Mm -hmm. um, Chardonnay has a much larger band. So just from a pure perspective of longevity, mm -hmm. You know, Chardonnay made more sense to me mm -hmm. um, because I just think it can fight climate change a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, Riesling, on the other hand, I don't know, you know. <laughs> Maybe that'll get replayed, I don't know. But, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so I think that's, you know, that's, that's the land. That's, mm -hmm. that's what we've got here. So you came into this without really any farming background, and obviously you, right, you right. hired good people to help with the project. But tell me yeah. what you what you had to learn about farming, and, and what you have learned since the grapes have gone in. Sure, sure, everything, um, absolutely everything. I, I you know I knew a few things from books, um, and I knew a few things from my childhood, you know, in in, in Ohio, you know, on various farms. Um, but in reality, I knew nothing. Luckily, the uh, Oregon Wine Symposium. Um, was right after I closed on this property. So that was my opportunity to go to every uh, seminar, talk to every person, talk to all the vendors, see who I needed down here, and that's what happened. You know, as soon as that symposium was over, I had um, contractors down here, I had vineyard development people down here, 
I had Department of Forestry down here. Uh, they were all here. Mm -hmm. And talk, 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 and take a lot of notes. Um, you know, it's like I, re I remember when I bought my first house. This was back in Virginia. And I knew zero about houses. I mean, I could change a light bulb. That's about it. But I had to remodel this whole house. And I did not have the money to hire a person. So I was like, great, I'm going to remodel this house. I'm going to take down walls. I'm going to redo electric. I'm going to redo plumbing. So I went out and I bought a Time Life book. And I opened page one. And I said, and I went through that book, you know, piece by piece and learned, you know, quite a few times. I, I did not do the electric quite right and ended up on my back 10 feet away, uh, <laughs> which may explain a lot. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, it, it was just going through a book and then doing it and making mistakes, but learning from the mistakes, and um, off you go. So the same thing was, was true here. It was like, talk to a lot of people, learn from them, get them out here, learn who to hire, because obviously this is more than a house. Um, I cannot do all this on my own. And so through a process of referrals and direct communication, you develop a team, which, which is what I did. I developed a team of, of people that I could um, rely on, you know, both for conversation, but also for getting it done. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it was a short time thereafter that we uh, started logging and farming the land. And by the end of that year, um, the part that was um, non-treed, the pasture part, was being planted. So it, it came together, I think, kind of quickly. Specifically, when you were looking for for work in the vineyard, for people to help to help to help to plant, help design, help think through the vineyard, what did you find yourself? What were you looking for? Who, what was the the kind of the characteristic of the people you wanted to help you with the vineyard? Um, integrity, I think, was the one thing I really wanted. Um, I didn't know any of these people, uh, and you have referrals, but they come from people I also don't know. <laughs> um, ultimately, um, Denny, who who owns Sojo here, um, it, it was his vineyard team that I ended up hiring. Um, why? Because I, I, I knew Denny better than anybody, I guess, at that time. And um, you have proximity. They're going to be working that vineyard. Why not just develop this vineyard at the same time? You know, you, you're, you're right here. You got a little savings of, of, of resources, as it were. Um, so, so that, and honestly, I had no other thing to really base it upon. Uh, you know, I just didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, but they had a good, you know, I, I I, they gave me some referrals. I walked some vineyards that they had managed. There were some things they were doing that were fantastic. Other things, you know, I was like, well, you know, we, it's not my philosophy, but, you know, you're not dogmatic in your approach and you'll work with me. And they did. Um, so, that, you know, that's how I guess they got picked was just from a conversation with a neighbor, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of things around here happen that way. Um, which is fantastic, you know, it's, it's part of the community and the camaraderie that, you know, you, uh, you have up here. And, and when I think back at some of the old stories of the pioneers, right, and starting Steamboat, it's like no better example of camaraderie and coming together mm -hmm. with, you know, thought and critique to make an industry rise. Mm -hmm. And that's something, you know, we've started, there's a few Chardonnay groups around here. Um, Obviously, the, the, the symposium, the, the Chardonnay celebration is the largest, um, but there are many smaller technical ones um, that are fantastic to be a part of, and it's really fun to, to get into why what's in your glass is in your glass, right? What brings it to here? Mm -hmm. And we just did one with all the winemakers from uh, the 2019 vintage of this vineyard, 
And they're all different expressions, right? But they were, you know, some were harvested on the same day, they come out different. Some were harvested a week apart, and you could, um, you could notice the, the slight difference in the ripeness or phenolics, right? And it's like, all right, let's dig into when we harvested, you know, what the numbers were, you know, um, acid bricks, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then what did you do? How did you bring it from a grape to what's in the bottle? Mm -hmm. And, and just get into it. And so th these are things that I think are happening. Um, they're fantastic because it, it, I think it's going to make a better product. It's going to make Oregon, uh, you know, just rise in, in the international community of, of, um, of fantastic wines. Mm -hmm. You know, is it ever going to be Mont Rocher? I don't know. You know, Montrachet is getting a little warm. <laughs> so, so you know, maybe, maybe this is you know down the road. You know, my kids or something, they'll uh, mm -hmm. they will be sitting on Grand Cru. You know, it's possible. So once you have your grapes in the ground, tell me about preparing for your first harvest and and all. Was your plan at the time to simply grow and sell grapes? Did you have a plan to make your own wine? Right. And how did you find people to buy your grapes? Mm -hmm. The plan never was to make wine. So we'll get back to that. <laughs> <laughs> it was merely to be a farmer, sell the grapes. Uh, and that was, that was it. So, you know, as first harvest came, um, my first buyer was, was Tom and Kate at the Vision. And, and I had met Kate at a, uh, a Jardinier in San Francisco. She and Josh Bergstrom and a few others were doing a, uh, a tasting there that I went to. Um, these actually were the first Oregon winemakers I met and shook hands with. So she was one of the first. And I really liked their wine. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, separately, I, um, I met Tom a little bit later. And, and the day I met him, a good friend of mine, actually my best friend, who was the best man at my wedding, he calls me up and he says, you know, I met this guy uh, in Oregon. You should go meet him. He's a winemaker. And it was Tom Monroe, same guy. And they had, they had met separately, you know, through music. And so it was funny because I, I met Kate, and then he meets Tom, and I meet Tom, and, and we just became friends, mm -hmm. you know, right, right away. Um, and, and, and Tom, you know, when we were moving into, I guess it was 2018, he, he and Kate came down here and looked, and immediately they, you know, picked the block that they wanted and said, yeah, we're in. And so that was client number one. And then from there, you know, it, uh, I met Vincent. Uh, Fritsche, mm -hmm. and at, at a lunch, you know, it's uh, one of these good old boys, and, 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 and you know, Dickie Rassin and, and Myron, and, and, and it's just fun lunches. And I met Vincent, and many, many months later, I met him at a tasting, and you know, said, "Do you, you remember sitting next to each other?" And, and da da. He's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." And it's like, "Well, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to do my first harvest. I don't know if you're looking." And it's same, you know, he came down, and looked. He says, "Yeah, okay, I'm in." And then the, uh, the third one, there was only three that year. The, the third one was um, Luke and Meredith at Statera. And I'd met Luke through Tom. Uh, and it was at a tasting that I had his Johan Chardonnay. Actually, all three of his single vineyard Chardonnays. But the Johan, being fairly close to here, was the most comparable. And I loved it. And I was like, I don't know if you want a new source, but I love what you're doing. It was the same with all. I mean, I loved with Tom, with Vincent. I loved what they were all doing. And I think that's kind of, you know, critical to who I work with. If I don't like your wine, um, it probably doesn't make sense for us to work together. 
Um, but all three of these were making fantastic wines, fantastic Chardonnay specifically. Mm -hmm. So it was an honor that they all said yes, right? And that first harvest was beautiful. It went off. Um, and, and, you know, it was a little frustrating because, you know, you got to line up your harvest crew with um, the vineyard manager and, you know, they, they manage multiple vineyards. Everybody wants the same day. Mm -hmm. um, it never works out, right? So <laughs> the sooner you get your pick date in, the sooner that, uh, sooner that you can, you know, lock a date in. So everyone, you know, we, we had one pick. Um, someone wanted to pick early. And then, but then, like, you know, we were going to have all the rest of the pick on the next day. And Luke decides not to pick. <laughs> he wants a little bit more. I was like, daggone. <laughs> you know, this is, this is a pickle, right? <laughs> but the upside, the silver lining was this, is that at the end of the day, I was able to go out into the vineyard and see how much was picked and what that translated it to. Um, being first harvest, I had no idea what the yield was going to be. And lo and behold, when I saw what was left, it was two tons more than Luke wanted. So I was like, oh boy, what do I do? You know, it's the end of September. Um, you know, they're just going to sit and rot on the vine, I guess. So I, I called Luke. I was like, do you want two more tons? And he was only getting like one and a half at the time or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, he, he said no. Um, I was like, well, all right. And so I quickly got on the phone, called, I don't know, a dozen people. Could, could, do you want new fruit in two days? <laughs> of course, no. So Luke, what do you think about making some wine for me? And we talked about it, and uh, and he agreed on the condition, you know, that I get bins, and I get barrels. And it's like at this point I've got 24 hours. So uh, luckily the neighbor had bins; they were not going to use the next day. And then uh, um, Tim Ramey helped us out with some barrels. And um, we had what we needed. And the next day, the grapes went up to you know, Abbey Road Farm, and, and uh, I had a couple barrels made for me. Um, it was interesting, because partway through the fermentation process, you know, Luke calls me up. He's, what do you think we just, you know, we'll just take the fruit. <laughs> I was like, it's that good, huh? <laughs> So, you know, we, we worked something out, and uh, it's fantastic, and Luke's been great to work with. Um, you know, I could not have gotten luckier. But again, it's kind of one of those things. We, there was no preparation. It was, you know, we had two days to make all this happen. And, and you know, we bottled this March and, and, you know, 50 cases and sold all the wine, you know, except a few cases I held back kind of for myself. And it tastes fantastic. And, you know, Luke, I cannot thank him more for, you know, bringing me into sort of a new fold, which is something I never wanted to do, expected to do, um, but here I am. And we did the same thing in 2020, kept a little bit back, not as much because the crop was short and, mm -hmm. you know, I need, to, I need to actually give grapes to the clients before I take them myself. I'm kind of fallback guy, uh, which is fine, you know. Um, I think this, this year I've, I've organized a little bit better with my commitments and uh, we plan on doing more um, of the Royer label um, going forward. So back up for a second before I ask more about that. Um, you had talked earlier about um, sort of finding people who align with your philosophy in the, in the vineyard. Tell me, when it came to planting and farming this, what was, what, is, what was and is your farming and vineyard philosophy? Yeah, so it was be as 
I don't know if hands-off is the right word, but be, be as, as hands-off and uh, as possible and don't manipulate, don't do stuff. Um, let the ground and the sun and the rain take care of as much as possible. Um, so, you know, you know, to this day, my vineyard manager, you know, kind of chides me a little bit. He's like, you know, we, we can't get the weeds out of your vineyard because you didn't, when we started, you know, we didn't spray herbicide to start the vineyard. We just put the vines right in amongst the weeds and uh, let them grow. And of course, that's one reason why we're on, you know, the new block year five, and maybe we'll get a harvest this year, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm proud to say, hey, you know, Roundup herbicide never hit that. It was never there mm -hmm. um, from day one. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a challenge, right? So I think that's been my philosophy is to let Mother Nature take care of it to create a microbiome both in the soil and above the soil, you know, with the wildlife mm -hmm. that is very harmonious and can take care of itself. You know, I think that's more and more critical as we experience dryness. Mm -hmm. This is very dry. Um, you know, this vineyard still is not what I would call established. So, you know, I'm out there, I, you might have seen the, the one gallon water jugs when you came, I'm, I'm watering, you know, I spent eight hours yesterday watering one by one the vines that need watering, you know, because I'm not going to water 49 vines that don't need watering for one that does. Um, but it's time consuming, and, but it's, you know, it's what I believe is, is important. Um, it's funny because, you know, I think Oregon, you know, I don't know, we're 50, 60 years. In, in trying things, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we don't have the benefit of the monks in thousands of years mapping everything. Um, but water is one of these key topics, mm -hmm. right? And it's going to become increasingly more so. Um, so, you know, we have these discussions all the time, you know, cultivation, no-till, irrigate, don't irrigate. You know, you hear people say, well, you know, if you, if you cultivate, um, it allows water penetration better. Um, Maybe, yeah. Um, you know, I've heard the opposite approach, that the roots of cover crop create channels for water to go deeper. Um, everyone's got a story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you cultivate, perhaps you can dry farm better, but you kill your microbiome. Um, if you don't, if you do no-till, which is something kind of Mimi Castile got me on board with doing no-till, so this is the first year we're, we're trying it now. Um, you know, do the vines stress, you know, perhaps, and if you need to irrigate, I don't know, maybe, but what's the, you know, what's the trade-off, right? Is, is no-till and saving the microbiome and, and irrigating better or worse than cultivating and not irrigating? You know, I don't have that answer. Um, you know, I don't know if anybody does really, but that's an interesting experiment. Um, and perhaps someday that's something, you know, I will take on. Um, but in the meantime, you know, we, uh, we, we, we don't spray herbicide. Sulfur is, you know, the only thing that, that's sprayed here. Um, I don't particularly participate in bio with sprays. You know, I do things according to moon cycles, but that's, you know, more from my fishing background and understanding, you know, tides and, and the moon and sap flow um, rather than, you know, reading Rudy Steiner. Uh, but, the, you know, I, I may get into it, right? Um, I've seen benefit at other vineyards. I'm just, I just don't have the time right now to learn that. Um, but I, I, I think there's merit to it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, organic's kind of an overused term. 
um, you know, what's organic anymore. You know, it's staying away from things that aren't organic, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and, and yes, I do, you know, we stay away from things that are not organic. But uh, I think we're just kind of non-interventionalists, really kind of more, um, sustainable is kind of a weird word, but I guess sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, and you could maybe hear the weed whacking going on. That's how we manage weeds here. We, we weed whack them, um, or hoe, you know, one, one or the other. Um, but yeah, that, that's, I, I think it's pretty simple. Um, it, and it may change, you know, uh, this is a new vineyard, so the nutrients in the soil are still quite good. You know, it's possible that we experience nitrogen depletion, you know, in five years, and then what do we do? How do we fix nitrogen? Well, cover crop is kind of addressing that right now, and it's something, you know, I'm thinking forward to, you know, how do we utilize cover crop mm -hmm. um, to manage uh, the, you know, the, the, the composition of the topsoil, the nutrients that the vines are accessing. Um, so, I, it's, you know, it's, it's an experiment. Like, you know, for instance, you know, playing with rootstocks. You know, in this new block, we have um, seven different clones, you know, mixed on seven different types of rootstocks. So some clones have, you know, two or three different rootstocks associated with them. Um, none have all seven. but. So, so it's you know all shallow Witzelite soils, and uh, we're, I'm just going to see how these rootstocks do, and 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 per, you know kind of on the clones, this grand you know Excel spreadsheet that tells me every vine, but you know, <laughs> outside of that, I'd be lost looking at you know what's what. But so for me, this is kind of experiment number one. Well, actually, number two, I've got another experiment down here, which is different rootstocks, but more row by row, um, and we'll, and we'll see how you know RG does relative to 101 to 3309 to Schwartzman and mm -hmm. on, on a s same clone, same soil profile, and mm -hmm. that that would give me some data. Probably could be this year, could be next year, um, but we're about to the point where the vines are established and the rootstock will start giving us information. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly the new block's going to be fun, <laughs> you know, grand experiment as it were. Um, and, you know, I hope it pays off. <laughs> well, it'll never pay off. It's kind of for, forbiddingly expensive to develop Witzel soil. <laughs> pays off in flavor, if nothing else. If nothing else. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about Chardonnay. Obviously, you mentioned yeah. Chardonnay as the, as the kind of the driving force here and the decision to go with Chardonnay. You also had talked a little bit about sort of the evolution of Chardonnay in California into something that a lot of people are kind of turned off by or think they, you know, they don't, I don't like Chardonnay. So tell me about the notion of Oregon Chardonnay and, and of the work being done to make a Chardonnay that people will like and then of overcoming kind of the preconceptions about it when it comes to selling it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, early on, I. I've not, I've not had too many examples of old Oregon Chardonnay, but the ones I've had, and in talking to people that had, you know, pr, you know, ten-year-old um, when it was current and fresh, the stories that you hear um, tend to revolve around a wine that was um, not nuanced, you know, watery, bland, lacking, you know, too acidic, uh, things like that. And it's like, okay, why? You know, why? Why is it like that? You know, what? what made it and it's like all right you know people talk about clones like maybe it was the 108 clone it just didn't ripen um, maybe it was planted on inferior soil maybe it was just not farmed right because people didn't care right um, they're too busy worried about the pinot and all those things are true mm -hmm. you know it's not one it's all mm -hmm. and so when looking at it you know what I did here is like this is you know a, a, a nice prime site that would happily take Pinot Noir but it all took Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. So this is, I think, you know, one step in, in Oregon's evolution to 
um, make a better Chardonnay, you got to start with good land. And then you have to pay attention, pay attention to the land, right? And it's like, you know, I, I walk these rows every day and I'm looking, I'm just looking. And, you know, sometimes everything looks great and I don't do a single thing. Other times, you know, it looks like maybe some leaves need to get pulled or there's, you know, something, right? Or there's a sucker, you know, just small things. And it's attention to detail that uh, I think makes a difference, you know, perhaps at the margin. Um, it certainly probably doesn't trump the site, mm -hmm. um, but it, 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 uh, it makes a difference. And then, you know, clonal material, right? It's, it's changing, you know, you went from heritage clones mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, the Dijon clones that came in and now Dijon's kind of prominent here. That being said, there's now kind of a reversion in a, in, at the margin again to heritage clones as you know this new block I have it's it's slightly more inclined to the sun a little more western a little more heat um, there's a lot of heritage clones in there we'll see if they ripen right mm -hmm. but climate change I think is you know we'll see what it does to the Dijon clones you know and is there a tipping point where it becomes too warm for those clones you know that's yet to be mm -hmm. determined but I think it makes some sense again to diversify you know, both in your, in, in your material and in, in, in the habitat itself of, of the land. Mm -hmm. so, so at any rate, that's kind of where Chardonnay, you know, I think was. And now you've got, um, over the past, I don't know, five, six years, something like that, a real focus on Chardonnay. You know, I think it started with the uh, celebration, the Chardonnay celebration, and, and all the people that put that together, you know, as an offshoot of IPNC. Uh, fantastic job and kudos and thank you for elevating you know all of what we're trying to do with Chardonnay here um, and yeah you're seeing people plant on good sites mm -hmm. you're seeing people farm like it's Pinot Noir you're seeing uh, care and attentiveness mm -hmm. and then you're seeing you know great winemakers you know take it on now um, and want, want it to be a star right alongside their Pinot Noir, right? N not, not the ugly stepchild that's kind of in the back. No, 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 you're right alongside now. You're, you're king and queen, right? Um, and, and that's what it takes. And that's what it takes. And, and now, you know, as you, as you drink these wines, um, they're, they're full of beauty and nuance and elegance and they're capable of aging. Um, and they're their own thing, right? Mm -hmm. They're not California. They're, they're not Burgundy. Mm -hmm. they're, they're Oregon. And it was funny because uh, a good friend of mine makes wine in Santa Cruz and kind of, kind of a new shop there and does a lot of Chardonnay, you know, high elevation, Santa Cruz mountains, mm -hmm. some beautiful stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and he set me up a bottle. He goes, Mark, he goes, you're going to love this. He goes, it's very Oregonian. <laughs> I was like, well, okay, it's not Burgundian anymore. It's Oregonian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, fantastic. We've arrived. <laughs> High praise. Yeah, yeah. So fantastic. Um, but I think that it's a, that's a, this is where you know Chardonnay's headed. It's headed on center stage. Um, it's it, it, you know I think sales-wise it probably doesn't you know compare to California yet. But at least in the, you know the, the groups that I drink with um, and, and my clients, Oregon is becoming an easier sell. Mm -hmm. It's becoming a greater sell um, than than. Um, other regions, I know Burgundy is getting expensive, uh, and limited in in quantity with kind of the climatic issues they are having there, whether it's heat or hail. Um, you know, just supply is not that great. Mm -hmm. um, so Oregon's in a great position to to kind of benefit, and I think the fact that it's being taken very seriously 
is is really going to put us on center stage if it has not already. Mm -hmm. um, I think it has. You know, in many regards, you look at who's coming into Oregon now. Like like, what's the money, right? You always follow the money trail, and and the money trail here is um, French people coming in, right? Um, they see the potential, um, not just the quality, but the fun factor. I think you know the experimentation. Mm -hmm. um, it's not restricted in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, but also, big California money is coming up here, you know, um, larger companies, Jackson and such, mm -hmm. um, and and just California tech people and, and whatnot, just a lot of money from there. Um, so it's like, okay, great, a lot of money is coming into Oregon, you know, what's that going to do? And, and that, I think, is yet to be determined, um, but hopefully it's all good. <clears throat> um, but, but yeah, I think that's where Chardonnay, you know, it's, it's, it's very exciting, and I think we are... You know, we're, we're starting to get to that curve where, where it's going to be, uh, we're really going to shine. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to it. With your own brand now to sell, tell me about sort of the market reaction when you're selling Chardonnay. Are people, is it easier than you anticipated? Is it harder? What, how did you sell your wine? Well, let's, you know, back up a second. I only made 50 cases, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I'd call that a label. Um, and, and for the most part, you know, it went to, Friends and family, um, you know, and through through Cordier, my, my wine company. Um, so I had existing clients and, and selling. You know, I, I guess I probably sold 45 cases. Um, it was not that hard. <laughs> uh, you know, if that was a 500 case, it would be a different story we'd be having um, because then I'd have to actually get out, you know, knock on doors, do real work. Um, but a couple barrels, you know, you, you do that in your sleep, really. Um, and, and you know, I know 2020 being what was a you know for me at least small. I mean, only one barrel, and that's already sold off to the people that bought last year's. Um, but the reception um, was very good. It, it was funny, I'll tell you. Um, and there's this thing called bottle shock, and you know, you, you, every now and again you have a bottle, and someone says, "Well, bottle shock, bottle shock," and it's like, okay, you know, I, I I don't really know what you mean. I mean, it's it's a little tempered, it's different. I don't know, but I have nothing to compare to. Mm -hmm. So. Right before we bottled, I, I, I drank a glass, you know, out of the tank, and, and I said, "Yeah, this is this, we're ready to bottle. This is really good." So we bottled, and about four days later, I opened one of those bottles. I was like, "This is not my wine." I'm like, "I don't." It's like somebody switched the baby, right? <laughs> so I was mortified, um, and I immediately took the bottle back away. And <laughs> it's like no one's drinking, no soup for you. So um, yeah, I was like, "Wow, that's bottle shock." And it took a couple months, you know, for it to come back around. Mm -hmm. um, but now it's back around, and, and it's fantastic. And like I said, you know, it was mostly people I know um, purchased the wine, and almost every single one has come back to me with a note that how much they like it, why they like it, and you know, can they get more, right? So it's been. Uh, granted, it's all your friends and family, so there's you know, perhaps being nice on one hand, <laughs> but. Being so many people did it, and they wanted to buy more, um, and they already bought next year's, mm -hmm. um, is very you know promising at the at the margin. Again, it's you know again we're not talking about that much that uh, makes me have to go out and really work at this too hard. But someday, you know, maybe this coming vintage, um, we'll do 75 cases. <laughs> but I, I you know I think the, again I never had an expectation to want to have a label to make wine. Um, you know, I thank Luke every day that for taking on that responsibility. Um, but you know, who says I, I? I never wanted a label yet. I have one. I don't want to go over 50 cases. I'm, you know, I probably will. <laughs> Things happen, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Well, we've, we've talked a little bit about 2020 already, so I'm curious. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a couple questions about last year for you. Let's start with the pandemic part of things. And uh, going back to last spring, tell me about uh, sort of COVID coming, uh, personal and professional reactions at the time. What did you have to do to change and, and sort of how did you react and get through last year? Yeah, so, so it was, you know, like I said, I was living part-time in a rental in, in Northwest Portland and, and part-time down here. Now, unbeknownst you know, to COVID, I had made the decision to, uh, at the end of March, to move down here full-time. And that was right around the time COVID became a thing. Mm -hmm. And it was right around the time Portland shut down, became a ghost town. <laughs> so the timing could not have been better to come down here, move down here full-time and quarantine, which is what I did for the whole year. <laughs> Stayed down here, I, I farmed a lot and didn't see many people and just kind of hung out with, uh, well at the time, my uh, fiance and, uh, and the cats. And it was, it was fantastic. You know, I could not have been in a better spot. Mm -hmm. um, I think, did it, you know, did it really change the way we did things last year? No, not really. Um, and the vineyard's gonna kind of operate the way it is. I mean, I, I, you know, we spent more money on labor, which, you know, you need extra people that, to monitor protocol. Hey, baby. Um, and, but, but for the most part, it, it, it kept, you know, it kept an even keel. I, I think personally here, you know, obviously on a, on a wider scale, it changed a number of things. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that's probably a separate conversation. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, of course, then the, uh, the end of the year uh, or the fall hit with the fires. And, and for the vineyard, that had a bigger impact. Mm -hmm. Um, it was interesting when you, I mean, I mean, luckily, knock on wood, right, we, um, the fruit survived. Um, and it, it was a great harvest. And drinking out of the barrels um, as recently as last week, the Chardonnay is amazing. So I'm really happy with, uh, I'm really happy with the 2020 harvest. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and again, I'm one of those years. I'm glad I didn't have Pinot Noir. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it was scary. Um, you know, the skies were crazy. Um, you didn't know when it was going to end. Um, you know, I'm kind of living here full time. I got nowhere to go. Uh, I should have took off for the beach or something, but I did not. I you know, I wanted to protect. You know, it's like it's like this is this is my baby, right? I don't want to leave you. <laughs> And so did not leave and stayed through the whole thing and um, wondering if it was going to get better or get worse every single day. Mm -hmm. And you just never knew. And it, uh, and you know, we're right in the middle of harvest and you know, one of the clients um, harvested right at the beginning of the fire, just made the decision to get the fruit off. And it was uh, you know, a little bit early perhaps, but you know, fantastic to get some fruit off on one hand and, and it was, the grapes were part of a bigger blend anyway, so it, uh, I don't think it had an impact on what they were making. Um, but yeah, then it was like, gosh, you know, this is getting worse and worse and, uh, but it was interesting, you know, the dynamics of the fire. Um, I don't know, you know, if you talk to people on the east side, but the, the smoke kind of came in low on the east side and then hit, hit the ridge line and, and came high over here. 
and then out to sea and, and you know, muffled around for a while. Um, but, but, but our smoke here was very high. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get ash and things like that. Um, so I think the impact was a little bit less on our side than the east side. Um, but nonetheless, it, it, you know, it, it impacted some vineyards. Um, and, it, and it was just outright scary. I mean, and, and is, is it a predictor, right? I mean, this was the first one I've seen, you know, this close. Mm -hmm. uh, in California, a few here and there, but, you know, in Oregon, no. And, and, and we've got one going on right now in Southern Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, gosh, you know, I, I hope this is not a here we go again mm -hmm. scenario. Uh, but this, you know, kind of tells you that things are changing. And we need to do whatever we can do to minimize the chance of, you know, more things burning, um, more climate change, heating things up to create the conditions for things to burn. And how do we do that? And there's, you know, a thousand different ways. Um, but just, you know, pick one and go do it, right? <laughs> You mentioned earlier during you talk about when you talk about the, the pandemic part of things, sort of the, the things that changed in the industry and in sort of in life in general. And now that we're starting to come out, see the other side of that a little bit. Mm -hmm. What what changes do you see sticking around, uh, sort of in the wine industry and in, in, in what you in Oregon, and what do you see kind of returning back to where it was before? Sure. Um, you know, the one thing I, I saw, which maybe comes from. Um, my experience with Cordier was people bought a lot more wine and and not just a lot more but they upped their per bottle purchase price so they started to they're like gosh you know in a restaurant I paid X dollars for this bottle and at the retail shop you know it's it's a lot less mm -hmm. so but I'm still happy spending X dollars so why don't I buy this other bottle and suddenly you saw people's you know they, they up, up their game mm -hmm. And that's kind of stuck around, um, which is fantastic, right? Um, I mean, Oregon does not sell cheap bottles. You know, we, we are, give or take, higher priced. We don't appeal to every market, but I believe we appeal to a lot more markets than we did before um, the pandemic. And people are, are, like, used to spending $50 a bottle for Pinot now. Like, a couple years ago, maybe 30 was the number you know, for, for what they would spend for a nice bottle. Mm -hmm. Now 50's no problem. Um, so that's something I think that's gonna stick around and, and that's fantastic. Um, you know, I think the thing that really hurt is the restaurant scene. Um, you know, in, in Portland, restaurants are, are kind of part and parcel of existence. And, you know, a number of friends own restaurants there. Um, it, it was, you know, sad, disheartening to see them shut down, in some cases to go away. Um, it's beautiful to see the ones that have come back. And, and I think the way they've come back has been brilliant. You know, and this is part of what happened during COVID was, was creating uh, dining experiences, right? Where you're not just going into a place with people around you and trying to have a conversation, but you're hearing like five other conversations. Now you're, you're a little bit more private. I mean, we did this great dinner, not that we went to a great dinner that was, uh, that was um, put on by a chef whose name I cannot recall right now. And it was one of these American Express dinners and they had these beautiful yurt style tents out in like a parking lot in the Southeast. And it was in the winter time. So it was like a little decorated pretty and a little drizzly and had ambiance, right? Mm -hmm. Almost like you're in Europe. Mm -hmm. And you sit inside this yurt with just your people 
um, six people or, or, or four to eight, I guess, was the, was the size of the tents, and it had this beautiful dining experience, um, you know, unlike um, I'd been accustomed to. And, and I think you're kind of seeing, to some level, um, this partitioning of, of, of your parties to allow a little bit more intimate experience, um, which I think is fantastic. From a restaurant's perspective, you know, I don't know how they make that work because it's less people, less turnover. Um, the finances probably are terrible, you know, but somehow they're making it work and, and I applaud them and, you know, whatever we can do as uh, patrons, we should be doing, um, you know, tip more. <laughs> um, but, but keep people employed, right? I mean, we need restaurants, um, so let's do, let's do all we can do. You know, other things, um, I think people generally are more cautious, which is, which is a, you know, a good thing, ultimately. Um, you know, whether we'll keep wearing masks all the time, I don't know. You know, I still do if I go into a grocery store. Um, you know, obviously right now we're, we're not, and that's great. I, mean, I remember seeing some of your interviews a year ago, and people, some people are, are still wearing masks. It's nice we don't have to anymore. It's great that the vaccines are out. Um, that being said, there's still, you know, a significant portion um, that refuse to get vaccinated. And it's, you know, how, how do you deal with that um, if you run a business, right? Like, you don't know, you know, who's coming into your restaurant. You know, you're not wearing a, a tag, right, that says you're vaccinated. Um, and can a non-vaccinated person, you know, take your business down? I don't know. Mm. But I think it's a question, you know, that, that probably should be addressed at, at, at some point if it, if it starts happening. Um, I don't know. I guess that's all I got on that topic. <laughs> Been a lot to think about the last year, so and a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of things to see change. So let's talk a little bit about the, the future then. Uh, start with the future for, for you here, obviously coming into uh, early, early harvest still. You got a new, a new site, hopefully online this year. Uh, what are you looking forward to for the vineyard and for your own, for kind of for your own life here? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the vineyard, I, I just hope for a, another successful harvest, you know, that we get through this dry spell and, and the grapes are, are happy and the winemakers are happy, you know, most importantly. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we've got a few new clients this year. Um, you know, the vineyard, you know, we did 1.2 tons last year per acre, so pretty small. And, and, and this year, there was an expectation for two tons. I don't think we're going to get there. You know, we, we had some shatter um, this year with, with, with the fruit set. Um, you know, I, so I don't know where we're going to be. We'll, we'll do estimates, you know, at some point soon. Mm. But, um, but yeah, you, you hope for healthy grapes. You hope the birds don't eat them, um, <laughs> which is something that happens. But um, that, that's kind of where I'd like to see. You know, I, with, with two new clients coming on this year, you know, I, I hope that they get excited mm -hmm. about what they have. I know the returning clients, well, I would assume their returning clients are happy because they're returning. Um, and, that, and then, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm going to expand uh, the Royer label a little bit, you know, with the new block with the mixed clones and rootstocks and honestly I have no idea what that is going to even taste like so there's no point marketing it out as a grape for sale. We'll, we'll, we'll make wine and, and then if it's good we'll, we'll market the wine to the grapes for sale. Mm -hmm. um, but sorry, that's exciting. Um, it's always exciting to bring something new on and, and this will be something new this year. Mm -hmm. 
And speaking of something new, I, I know you just recently got married here on the site, so congratulations thank on you, that. Thank you, thank yes. you. Uh, outside of wine and vines, what are, are, the, are the things you're looking forward to, plan, plans or projects on the, in the, on the horizon? Yeah, so, um, yeah, thank you for, for those kind words. Um, yeah, we, we actually had, had the, the wedding right here. Um, it was beautiful. Um, had a nice group of people and, and enjoyed a lot of good wine and, and music and dancing. Um, it, was, it was great to bring, you know, a group of people back and just enjoy being around people, you know, in a festive atmosphere. Um, and it went on far longer than I ever anticipated into <laughs> the wee hours, but um, bravo, right? So, you know, what, what um, do I look forward to? You know, I look forward to, um, there's a couple things, you know, um, again, I think thinking about diversity, you know, one thing that, um, that my wife is into is tea. And, you know, we actually had a conversation with Larry Stone uh, about this, who actually was the officiant at the wedding, and um, and he knows a bit about tea as well, a bit about everything. <laughs> so, so we have planted some tea plants here, and we are going to see how they do, and we're going to see how the leaves, you know, come out, and can they produce a uh, interesting tea or not? And there's there's a place in Minto Island right here down in Salem that is a, a is a tea producer. Um, one of the few in America, there's not many. Um, you know, the climate perhaps is not exactly right, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what it can do. Um, I think, again, it's just part of diversifying and having something that's agricultural but different than a grape. Um, and, you know, we'll pick some leaves, you know, next, fall, uh, next spring and, you know, uh, break them down and roast them and, and make tea and, and see where we are and, and you know it's possible that tea becomes a thing out here um, you know it's certainly on the horizon you know other things um, I, you know I'm just not it's just really getting you know this vineyard established still you know there's still a lot of babying and hand holding with these young vines and I think this is the last year for that in the main 10 acres because the vines will be pretty well grown by the end of this year, mm -hmm. which will be nice, because then I could focus on the other six acres I haven't planted yet, and it's like, what do I do there? I don't know. You know, is it is it apples? Is it cherries? Is it more hazelnut trees? You know, is it grapes? And if so, what type of grapes? It, you know, the, the overall LLC is here, Willamette White Wine, is what it's called. So it's going to be a white grape. No, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, more Chardonnay, maybe. Um, you know, we'll see. I mean, with, with um, thoughts toward climate change, what do I want to plant, you know, that's going to be really good in 10 years? Mm -hmm. And I don't have that answer today, but I think about it every day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I expect to do something in 2022. So, you know, I still have a few months to noodle on this and come up with an answer. But... Uh, you know, I don't know, um, UTV race park? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> to be continued. To be continued, yeah. Uh, so talking about the future beyond here, uh, I'm curious what you see for the future of the Oregon wine industry. You talked a little bit about climate change, talked a little bit about sparkling. So uh, what do you see coming out of the pandemic for Oregon wine, and what, what is it going to look like in the future? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, Putting this crazy heat aside, I think the future is very bright for Oregon. I think we, you know, are in a position 
to um, both with resources, you know, the money coming in, but also with the brilliant leadership that we have from like the Oregon Wine Board, the Oregon Wine Growers Association. You know, the talent that drives those organizations is second to none. And what they're able to do for us as a community, both, you know, with legislative issues, um, with marketing issues, with basic information on how to do stuff, um, even stuff as simple as helping us with health insurance and, and FedEx, you know, shipments. I mean, you know, from the base layout all the way up to, you know, Congress, they're, they're taking care of it. Mm -hmm. and, and all they ask from us is a simple dues payment. You know, thank you, you know, we'll, we'll do that. Uh, <laughs> and, and add, you know, value where we can, but they are the workhorses. And I don't know any other state that has this kind of leadership that we do. Um, so, you know, I, I, I thank them all the time for, for what they're doing for us. They, they are a machine, you know, that um, is, is, is rising the community, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's also the people, right? This is, um, this is a pretty tight-knit group, you know, across all the AVAs. Um, there's not too many people you don't know and don't feel comfortable having a conversation with and batting ideas back and forth. As I said, you know, we, we more ideas and, and, and groups are getting together to share, to critique, to be better. And I think that continues, um, more, more so now that the pandemic's kind of in the rearview mirror because you're comfortable meeting people. You're, you're comfortable that you're not gonna bring something home to your family. Um, you have, you know, time and wherewithal to do it. Um, so I, I think that's all going to better the, the, the industry here. Um, but, you know, like what else, right? What else? All right, let's talk grapes for a minute, right? Um, yeah, Chardonnay's fantastic. And, and it's maybe the, the second newest kid on the block. I don't know, you know. What's, what's new? I mean, Gamay perhaps, right? You, you, you see Gamay plantings happening. Um, you know, it's a little bit more... Uh, uh, adaptable I think the climate and the soils here really tend to like that grape and what is coming out what's being put in bottle is fantastic um, at great price points and so I think I think that's another thing is price point right um, we're still you know although people are spending more in Pinot they, they not everyone is mm -hmm. and to be able to bring more people to the Oregon market you probably need a different price point mm -hmm. and I think GMA is helping with that and it's, it's kind of like a gateway drug almost um, to, to, our, to our little part of the world here. Um, but, you know, what else, what else is out there after Gamay? I think Gamay's, you know, here. It's, it's, and I think, like, like, you know, speaking of Tom and Kate, they've done a great job to promote that grape and, and to, you know, um, bring it to the light of, of the nation, right? Um, but, but, you know, there's other grapes out there. And as it gets warmer and warmer and drier, we will find that next grape, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I don't know what it's gonna be. You know, maybe it's some Italian white wines. You know, that's probably something I may dabble in. Um, but we'll see, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic place to be. And, um, you know, barring most days, it's perfect weather, you know. I mean, during the growing season, at least. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and and I, I really couldn't, you know, ask for anything more out of life. 
So we had talked a little bit earlier about sort of the future of Oregon wine, and you had a great answer there. But one thing you were talking about earlier was sparkling. So tell me about yeah, yeah. something about sparkling in Oregon, the what you've seen so far in it, and what you kind of look as you're looking ahead for sparkling. Sure. So you know, um, it's my belief that everyone should drink sparkling wine, period, every day if possible. <laughs> <laughs> and while I would say champagne is the best choice, um, and I think today probably still is, uh, Oregon is every single bottle I drink better and better and better. And, and that is exciting because this is the type of thing that we don't, we don't have in mass right now. Um, it's possible, we have the right grapes for it, right? We have Chardonnay, we have Pinot. Um, and, and you know, with a desire perhaps to pick earlier because of, of whatever reason, rains or, or fires or what it, call it what you will, mm -hmm. um, it allows us to do that and to create fantastic sparkling wine. You know, the, again, it's kind of, there's money going into it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and not just, you know, local money building production facilities and such to be able to custom make sparkling, which is a pain to make. Um, time consuming, expensive, you can't just do it on your own. Um, so to have kind of a custom facility is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and, but also you look at like, you know, Boulanger just bought in. Um, so that's kind of a, a stamp of approval, right, from one of the great champagne houses that, hey, this is a special place in the world. And, and we believe that sparkling wine can be made there. Um, so I was like, when, I, when I heard that news, I was joyed. Um, but I, I just I, I like drinking locally, you know, I really do, and and I love sparkling wine. So if I can, you know, personally drink more Oregon, that's what I'm going to do. Um, you know, where else? You know, there's a few places in California that make you know some storied places, Schramsburg, et cetera, that have been around since day one, and uh, you know they make a fantastic wine as well. But to have it made here. Uh, is is fantastic and great, uh, and I think we have we have the ability, the capability, the raw materials to do it, mm -hmm. and so I hope it gets done. <laughs> fantastic. Well, that's all the questions that I have for you, Mark. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have today? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Uh, no, I think we got it all. That's uh, uh, Rich. I thank you very much for for popping out here. This has been fantastic talk. <laughs> thank you it's for us too, and thank you for the tour and showing off your site. This is a, it's beautiful to see, and we're excited to see where it goes next. So, great, great. thank you for your time, for your stories, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.